Live Chat. Malcolm Turnbull announced that the laws of math do not apply here. <laughs> One of my favourite brands of comedy aerial is brown people and black people <gasps> making fun of white people. Senators have been dropping like flies recently. Shouting out the fact that in the Knowles Carter family, women just have one name. Backchat on FBI Radio. That's right, you're listening to Backchat, the freshest rap of news and current affairs on your radio. My name is Swetha Das and in the studio today is our lovely EP, Natalie Sekolovska. Hi Swetha, how are you going today? I'm good. I've had an eventful week. How's your week been? Um, It's been okay, but I don't think it's been as interesting as the week that you've had no I don't know if it's interesting it's sad okay <laughs> okay well I just want to I need to get this out of here because I'm um I'm stressed about how I'm going to exist for the rest of the day but last night I got a text uh, from my banks in George Bank and they were like hey uh there's been fraudulent activity on your card and they were like did you transact something about a car in NYC and I was like no and they were like a fraud officer is going to call you um and they call me up and they were like hey, so we just want to check if these transactions are yours because we think that there's some unusual activity on your card. And I was like, okay, great. And they were like, so did you um, try and buy a parking ticket at NYC? And I was like, no. And they were like, okay. Um, there were multiple orders of Uber Eats today. Um, was that you? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and she was like, and also Domino's? And I was like, yes. <laughs> That's me too. Um, but they still cancelled my card, uh, despite the fact that I was using it as it should be used. And she shamed me on the phone. Um, so now I have no money uh, and no cash. What are you going to do for the rest of the day? You're going to bankroll me today. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. No worries. <laughs> should we move on to... Anyway, <laughs> I need that out of there. If anyone wants to... Uh, text in and tell me what I can do or if you've had your your card cancelled and what have you done if you're stranded in the city what do you do text us in at 0409-945-945 we have lots on the show today we'll be speaking about how unis respond to sexual assault reporting and the so-called merger between two of Australia's biggest media companies but right now Natalie's beaming at me because it's basically Christmas in July for you right now Happy Super Saturday by-election day. That's so sad. Don't do that again. Don't ever do that again. (laughs) Well, um, if you haven't heard, about a million Aussie voters are heading to polling centres around the country to cast their votes in not one, not two, but Swetha, wait for it, five (laughs) (laughs) by-elections. The louder you get, it's not going to get me more excited. (laughs) So this is, okay, so there are five by-elections because of the dual citizenship scandal. Yeah. So last year it was uncovered that, uh, so Scott Ludlam uh, yeah. was a citizen of New Zealand. So was Barnaby. Yeah. So am I. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, so I can't run for federal parliament. Oh, that's And that's a shame. the only thing stopping me, to be honest. <laughs> um, so One Nation's Malcolm Roberts, um, he was a British citizen. Uh, so... Something that hasn't really been in the media this year is that the scandal actually continued into 2018. Um, So in May this year, four more MPs were caught up in the Section 44 debacle and another MP, Tim Hammond, actually resigned. So that's why we're having five by-elections happening this weekend. And the by-elections are all over the country. There's, um, they're happening in Queensland, South Australia, Tasmania and Western Australia. Yeah, so uh, the PM and his government are actually pretty safe this time around. Uh, They don't really have too much to lose in case Liberal candidates don't win their seats. But the coalition is actually trying to win at least one of the three seats it's targeted. 
Um, and if it actually pe- performs well in the by-elections, it could mean an early federal election for us all. That's exciting. Yeah, it could mean one this year. This year. So, democracy sausages. Oof, you know? I'm, I'm ready. I'm keen. I'm ready. <laughs> but um, in this case, Malcolm Turnbull may actually want to make the most of his popularity while he's confident the votes are still in his favour. Hey, where's Bill? Someone just said, no, no, Bill's in hiding today because the unions, he, he has... I remember the parliamentary friends of the ABC and your council's now going to sell it. Oh, rubbish. The ABC will be publicly owned forever. <laughs> so not so popular. Not so popular. Um, um, but in saying that, um, in, in you know talking about you know a federal election coming up pretty soon, well the coal- coalition hasn't actually been ahead in the polls on a two-party preferred basis since the last federal election in July 2016, um, and it doesn't seem as though Labor will hold on to all four seats of its um, all all four of its seats in the by-elections. Um, so I know you're disappointed, Swetha, but it is likely we'll be waiting perhaps until next year for a federal election. Right. And it's a lot more riskier for Labor, it seems, especially Bill Shorten, who might have his leadership challenged if Labor doesn't hold on to its seats, particularly those marginal seats in Braddon and Longman. Uh, Albo, Anthony Albanese, has been coined the main leadership alternative to Bill Shorten, even though he's absolutely certain he won't be challenging Shorten's leadership. So I look forward to the Labor leadership spill uh, <laughs> very soon. Um, now, another thing that you're very excited about is, um, is it? $72 Pauline Hansen cutouts? Yeah, yep. so yeah, the funniest thing to come out of this uh, is One Nation actually printing out 50 life-size cutouts of Pauline Hansen and then rolling them out at their pre-polling booths at the electorate of Longman. Uh, and that's because she, she went AWOL. She went on an overseas holiday uh, to Ireland uh, during closing week of the by-election campaign. So um, she wasn't around, so they brought in some life-size cutouts of her. I do. Um, people took photos. I think we might be tweeting a photo of them, so check that out on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> Great. But there we is need more Hanson content. Yeah. <laughs> but there is a focus on Pauline Hanson uh, with political analysts saying that her party, One Nation, could actually get 15% of the vote in Longman, um, and these votes will obviously go to the candidate Matthew Stephen, um, and these votes are expected to actually flow to the Liberal Party by right. preferences. So that's an important thing to note. This is going to be really interesting. We're going to make sure that um, everyone is updated on the Super Saturday, Saturday by-election day. Um, it's interesting because the government actually hasn't won a by-election in 98 years. So today is going to be super interesting. Interesting. We'll let everyone know what happens. Uh, but let's talk about some other news of the week. Um, news about sexual consent laws. Yeah, so there was another uh, news story that caught my eye this week. So Michaela Whitbourne, Sydney Morning Herald's legal affairs and investigations reporter, reported about a submission that the New South Wales Bar Association made to the Law Reform Commission. This submission comes after the Berejiklian government announced uh, that a review of sexual consent laws will be uh, held back in, so she announced that back in May, um, and that was obviously in light of the Saxon Mullins and Lazarus case. Yes, um, and now everyone's weighing in on that. Um, okay, so what the state's bar association is recommending is shocking. Okay, so this is what they're recommending: that a person, everyone, bear with me, that a person who has an unreasonable but honest belief in consent shouldn't be guilty of a crime. I. I think I speak for a lot of people in saying that I don't understand that. 
Yeah. Please it's, explain. <laughs> I will try. You, please put your law degree in practice right now and explain that to me. It's, yeah, it's very confusing, but I'll, I'll try and explain it in two steps. So how what the law is currently at the moment and what the recommendation actually states. So the law as it currently stands is that if a person has an unreasonable but honest belief that someone is consenting, then the court could interpret that as knowledge of a lack of consent. So consent wasn't there, but the person had an honest belief that there was consent. Um, But in the circumstances, it would have been unreasonable for them to have assumed that there was consent. Um, So that's actually, proving that is actually a key element of the offence of sexual assault. Um, So the law at the moment accepts that it's actually wrong for a person to be let off the hook um, in the in situations like this because a person in their shoes should have known that the other person wasn't consenting, um, either because there was particular action or, a langu- or, or some sort of language that suggested that the person wasn't consenting. Um, so the person should have known, they should have checked, and they should have been aware of signs indicating a lack of consent. So that's the law as it currently stands. Um, the recommendation is that um, if someone honestly believes that someone else is consenting, even if that belief is unreasonable, so they saw signs that suggested a person wasn't consenting but didn't pick up on them, um, in which case that honest belief would be unreasonable because it should have been clear that the other person was, wasn't consenting, then the New South Wales Bar Association is suggesting that that person shouldn't be found guilty. Okay, so, okay, this recommendation is obviously problematic. Why would you say it's problematic? So... It's problematic because it's just really regressive. Um, So it's not only regressive from a legal perspective because other states... So it's actually taking us back, whereas other states like Victoria and Tasmania have actually amended their sexual consent legislation to be more in line with enthusiastic consent, um, which, you know, is more of a step forward, I guess. Um, But it's also regressive from a social and cultural perspective, especially with dialogue in the Me Too movement, um, which is kind of shifting forward these attitudes of enthusiastic consent and teaching people about being more receptive towards particular actions and language that indicates consent. So this recommendation, which essentially says that a person shouldn't be guilty because they ignored or were ignorant of the signs or didn't know what they were doing was wrong, is a huge step back. It tells people that it's okay to have a mistaken unreasonable belief and there is a risk of this making people complacent which contradicts the very aims of me too and the dialogues that we're trying to have about what consent is and the importance of enthusiastic consent and about teaching people what to do and not to do uh, what to do and what not to do and when they should read these signs very interesting um we got a text in they just said the bar association is cooked I think that succinctly yeah. summarizes it. Um, and someone also said that you're way too excited about Pauline Hanson and cardboard. Oh, no. That's true. I agree. Uh, lots of interesting topics on the show today. We'd love you to weigh into the discussion. Text in at 0409-945-945 to share your thoughts. Right now, we're going to move on to a topic we've covered quite frequently on Backchat. It's sexual assault and harassment reporting services at universities. 
Yep. So late last week, Universities Australia released a new set of guidelines to help Australian universities provide support to students who report sexual assault and sexual harassment. They recommend that uni should ensure that staff have the skills to respond to reports of sexual assault, minimise the number of times students need to recount traumatic experiences, offer multiple ways to make a formal report. But... Are these recommendations enough and how are universities faring at the moment? Backchats reporter Eden Faithful looks into the reporting and counselling services offered by universities. Let's hear what she has to say. Earlier this year, a student who was the alleged victim of sexual assault apparently didn't have access to support services after the University of Sydney's two main counselling hotlines went down. This comes after a slew of investigations into rape culture on university campuses across Australia, prompting a discussion about the usefulness of counselling and reporting services available to survivors of sexual assault on campuses. You said rape and sexual assault counselling services are really interesting in that we don't really have them. Um, what we didn't countenance was the number of students that would then feel comfortable in coming forward and say, actually, I need support or I need assistance. You get kicked out of the university for plagiarism, you should be able to get kicked out of the university for raping another student. Last year, the Australian Human Rights Commission surveyed over 30,000 students at 39 Australian universities. It found that one in five students had experienced sexual harassment, and almost 2% had experienced sexual assault. Despite that, an overwhelming number of students didn't make a formal complaint to their university. Why is that? At the moment, if you experience a sexual assault and then potentially you absent fail or you fail three units, you get put on academic progressions um, and there's not really any accountability for like the experiences that you might have had, even if you've already reported them to the university. That's Maddie Ward, a women's officer at the University of Sydney. She thinks that the university's reporting and counselling services just aren't good enough. Currently, the university has CAPS, the counselling and psychological services, available to students seeking general counselling services. Basically, we have CAPS, but it's pretty severely um, inadequate in terms of, like, anecdotally. Like, we hear a lot of, like, things from students where they just don't have good times there. Um, they don't have any specific rape and sexual assault uh, counsellors that are actually employed by the university. Uh, there's one from RPA that comes once a week, I believe, but that's not really enough for how many students are at this campus. Um, and especially when CAPS is so severely lacking, we really need someone who's, like, permanently employed. There is one service aimed directly at survivors of sexual assault on Sydney University's campus, the provision of two student liaison officers who are crisis counsellors from the RPA hospital. But given these officers are present on campus only once a week, with a university of 60,000 students, that leaves them with a workload of 30,000 students each. With this in mind, I spoke to Geordie Austin, the Director of Student Support Services at Sydney University. I asked whether she thought these student liaison officers were able to carry out such an enormous task effectively. Workload and capacity is an excellent question and it's something that we are exploring. Austin says that the university is now considering expanding the student support services team to be better equipped to deal with cases of sexual assault and harassment on the campus. We did a bit of a 
ballpark figure and said, let's bring in the two student liaison officers. They can work with the university. They can be responsive to cases. Um, they can then assist us in the development and drafting of improved policies. She also says the university understands the difficulty some students face in the aftermath of sexual assault and harassment. What we're doing now is we're having to then reconsider whether we have got the right number of staff in that team. And I will be making a submission to the university that we should be expanding the resources in that team just to cope with the complexity of the issues that the students are bringing forward. Katie Thorburn, a previous women's officer at the University of Sydney and a sexual assault activist, makes it clear she's frustrated at the lack of awareness of sexual assault counsellors and hotlines. She says there's little to no advertising of where students can access these services on campus. I, I'm the previous women's officer. I'm good friends with the current women's officers. Out of everyone, I'm in a unique position to know what's going on and I don't know what's going on. So how does the regular student know how to navigate this? Katie raises a good point. How can universities expect students to report instances of sexual assault and harassment on campus when they don't know how? This lack of awareness makes students pretty apprehensive. Another huge issue with the reporting mechanism is we have absolutely no idea where that information is going, who is actually seeing that you've been a victim of sexual assault. Uh, and it's really important that people know up front what's going to happen in a reporting process. Another issue for survivors of sexual assault and harassment on campus is whether students can extend their assignment deadlines to deal with crisis counselling and the consequences of reporting. At the University of Sydney, reports that the system is severely inadequate have been circulating for years. So many survivors drop out, fail units. There's even cases of survivors failing units, coming up on academic progression and then getting kicked out by the university despite telling the university that they've been sexually assaulted and that's why they're failing subjects. So we know that's happening. We know the university is actually actively kicking out students who have disclosed they've been sexually assaulted. The Students' Representative Council, and the women's officers especially, have a long history of lobbying the university administration to make the reporting process on campus more efficient. When I asked Geordie Austin if they're taking on board their concerns, she had this to say. Rather than students needing to go through quite what can be a very painful process of needing to know when and how and by whom and by what date they need to put in their special considerations, for the student to be directed in the first instance to the student liaison officers who can then partner at a high level with the special consideration team to smooth that process through so that the student's not having to retell their story on five different forms or to ten different people who might be based either in the in the centre or the faculty. The purpose of relaying their information to the student liaison officers is so that the, the officers can then help and assist and smooth um, that process for them and reduce the burden um, and the worry that's placed on the students in having to tell their story multiple times, which we know is inappropriate and, and can be quite stressful for the student. The University of Sydney's reporting and counselling services for survivors of sexual assault and harassment on campus seem to be pretty inadequate. Despite the provision of two student liaison officers and a broader umbrella of counselling and psychological services, the university seems to be struggling to maintain streamlined reporting mechanisms. 
but Sydney Uni was the only university that agreed to discuss its policy on sexual assault and harassment services with us. Backtrack contacted the University of Technology Sydney, the University of New South Wales, the University of New England and Southern Cross University, but they either ignored multiple requests to comment or just declined to speak to us. Um, it's really a multifaceted approach that needs to be taken, not just a one or thing that's going to work. We want to be preventing sexual assaults from happening and we want to be supporting survivors when sexual assault happens. That was Eden Faithful with her package on university reporting and counselling services. And on that note, I'm just going to quickly do a plug for Backchat. So we're looking for reporters for future shows. So if you're interested in contributing to the show, uh, creating radio packages, uh, then look out for our reporter call out on the FBI radio website and our social media. Um, applications will be opening soon. So don't miss out on that. Yes, we're going to head into a song now in honour of Kendrick's incredible splendour and recent Sydney tour. We are playing Humble by Kendrick Lamar. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5. Welcome back. Swetha, uh, you've got a text for us? Yes, we've got a text. Um, so someone texted in. They said, universities couldn't care less about fixing the sexual assault crisis on campus. USID, for example, gave sports teams and facilities 11 times more in funding than student services, the people who deal with rape complaints. Uh there's a big difference between the 385k to student support and the 4.3 million to sport. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's so true. It, it shows where the university's priorities are, and that's definitely something we need to change. Exactly. Uh, well, let's get into the big news of the week now, Swetha. Bring us in. Yeah, so you probably heard about the $4 billion media merger between Fairfax Media, which publishes the Sydney Morning Herald and heaps of other city and regional papers and the nine entertainment company. Fairfax's CEO, Greg Highwood, said the new company would be called Nine, ditching a name that's been a huge part of Australian media for more than 175 years, but would keep plenty of Fairfax media DNA. We'll see how that goes. Uh, but not everyone is happy about the news. His former PM, Paul Keating, speaking about this on 7.30 on Thursday night. Why do you have such a dim view of Nine? Because it's such a low-brow outfit. You know, checkbook journalism, foot-in-the-door journalism. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a low-brow show, and it always has been. And people who've worked there have been happy to take the money working for a low-brow outfit. Yeah, so what does this actually mean for us? Is this just a corporate takeover that will only affect what happens behind the scenes? Or, or does it foreshadow some big changes to what used to be two of the biggest players in a disrupted industry? Incoming associate at La Trobe University, Dr. Uh, Andrea Carson, joins us now to dissect what the deal says and read the tea leaves of Australian media. Hi, Andrea. Good morning. So what was actually announced on Thursday about the merger? So this announcement caught a lot of the journalists at Fairfax and indeed at Nine by surprise, where the companies had been in private talks and announced to the stock exchange that they were going to come together under a new name, which is Nine. Uh, and it's been described as a merger, but really it's more of a takeover. The board will be predominantly Nine uh, personnel and it will carry the name Nine and Fairfax, which you rightly described in your intro, which has 140 regional papers and some of the best metropolitan daily papers 
um, that have existed in Australia for the last 170 years, they will no longer be called Fairfax newspapers. <laughs> so what do you think uh, led to this merger? Well, I think the seeds have been sown for a while. In 2012, some of your listeners might remember that 3,000 jobs went um, between Fairfax and News Corp, the other big company owned by Rupert Murdoch. And then in 2013, in order to try and cut more costs, Fairfax reduced its size of its newspapers down to tabloid size, and some would argue that also began to change the feel and the um, shape of the journalism. Then there were law changes last year, and this is probably the most significant part where the seeds were sown for what happened this week. Those law changes uh, loosened the relationship of cross-media ownership. It meant that uh, a TV company could own a radio company and a newspaper company, and before you could only own two out of three. Uh, those laws were changed, which paved the way for this merger to occur. So there was also rather a sombre response from the journalism community. Why are some people concerned about this move? Yeah, rightly so. They should be very concerned, particularly coming from Fairfax, a newspaper that has a strong t- tradition of investigative journalism and also, as I mentioned, has uh, a strong regional presence. In the announcement by Nine CEO Hugh Marks, he made clear that there probably wouldn't be a place for the regional newspapers. And these are some of the greats like the Newcastle Herald, the Illawarra Mercury, um, the Tasmania Examiner, the Launceston Examiner. This is a problem because if you look at the Newcastle Herald, it was because of the intrepid journalism that was going on there over many years that Catholic church sex abuse was uncovered and led to the Royal Commission um, called by the Gillard government. Now, if it wasn't for the tenacious spirit of that particular journalist who had the support of her news organisation, that may never have seen the sign of light that it did, which has led to changes right across the country to try and protect children. So this is why journalists are concerned, because Channel 9 just doesn't have that pedigree for doing that type of journalism. And there will be job cuts because obviously there will be degrees of duplication when you bring two different media outlets together. Um, Already it's been foreshadowed by Nine CEO. There will be at least $50 a year in savings, which they see as a good thing. The journalists obviously see that as a real negative. So you mentioned that this is going to obviously have a negative impact on regional papers as well as investigative journalism. Um, And I mean, you know, it's super important that we have a lot of diversity in media. But I mean, what kind of effects, what other effects does this merger have on media and democracy in general? Well, I think they are the two concerns. I mean, who knows what's around the corner, whether suddenly Channel 9 is going to have a commitment to things that it hasn't had a commitment to in the past. But this is why they are rightful concerns of journalists and other um, people such as academics like myself. But the essence of what the media traditionally played was meant to be to keep a check on um, the excessive power of the government and also of private interests. And what we're seeing is that role has been diminished over time. It makes it harder when uh, there's a victim who is not being able to be heard a last resort was to go to the media that would stand up for the powerless. If the media is so diminished, they're unable to do that. And by media, I'm talking about news media. I'm not talking about your building shows and your um, your reality TV or anything like that. I'm talking about the news media. And that's the concern that 
victims will uh, not be able to have their voice and have someone defend them, which is what has happened in the past. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for speaking to us today, Dr. Carson. Um, That's all we have for the show today. Um, People are pretty upset about this news. Someone texted in and they said, um, talking about the Fairfax CEO, whose name is Greg Highwood, they were like, more like Greg Plywood, flimsy man. (laughs) That's great. That's amazing. (laughs) Good to hear. Uh, But yeah, that's all we have for the show today. Um, As always, a big thank you to our producers, Amelia Zhao and Cam Wilson. And of course, thank you to you, Natalie Sekolovska. Thanks for having me. For being in the studio today. And we're going to leave you with this song we're going to leave you with Fever Highs by No Mono catch you all next week